Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Grace Singsong. Grace is a pharmacy student at the University of Southern California, so go Trojans. Uh, she's also working on her MS in healthcare uh, decision analysis. Recently, she was also featured on a on a blog that I've had on here previously with uh, the Grassroots Pharmacist blog. So welcome to the podcast, Grace. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, so it, I think it's a really good conversation that we're going to have today because we really kind of wanted to dive into what's going on with some of the things as around President Biden and kind of what he's rolled out. And so we're going to dive in kind of the blog that you wrote that was on this topic. And one of the big things that this administration has in their plan is to reduce drug prices by negotiating them for Medicare Part D. Can you explain to the listeners why this is a big deal and kind of what this would do? Yeah, so the Biden administration suggested a lot of like policies, but the Medicare Part D uh, drug price negotiation probably has the most, I would say, impact or like probability of actually getting to pass because of the substantial like bipartisan support. And, and why do you think it has such bipartisan report, uh, support? I think it's just the general public knows that it can afford the expensive drug pricing anymore. Like you know, our patients are really having a hard time. Like I. I've talked to patients who wouldn't pick up their medication because they can't afford it. Yeah, one of the reasons I was thinking was is just finally the government was going to try and use their use the weight and the might they have because Medicare Part D is a huge, if not the biggest payer uh, in the whole healthcare field as far as dr- prescription drug prices. So as they move, so moves the market. And given that it's mostly people who are either on disability or people who are older, they're generally on more medication. So that's one of the main things that they're going to see their power and they're able to move just because the volume that their patients are on of those medications. And is that kind of the, the way you think it's going to happen too? I completely agree with you. Yeah. The commercial payers usually look to CMS for yes, drug coverage and formula replacement as well. They, they're kind of like the deciding factor. Gotcha. Yeah. And I forget how many, how many billions that Medicare spends on prescription drugs, but it's, it's way up there. Uh, I just didn't, couldn't find the exact number that was similar to each year. It obviously takes time to get some of that data. So one of the things that you had also mentioned in the pricing of prescription drugs was this thing called external pricing. Can you kind of elaborate on what that is and kind of how it works? So it's as simple as like using prices from other countries as like a benchmark for drug pricing here in the United States. And it's very popular in other countries actually. And it doesn't really work out for America since we're usually the first one to, I guess, accept it into market. So most countries look to our pricing instead of the other way around. Okay. And why are we usually the first one to market with some of those prices? Is it just because a lot of the drug companies know they can make more money here? Or what's the exact reason for that? Do you know? Uh, not too sure, but I, I do think that it's because our government doesn't really regulate the like, drug launches and since we don't have a universal health care, manufacturers are just um, can freely, but it doesn't yeah it doesn't stop manufacturers from launching new drug new drugs even though the like there's not the, the research isn't as impactful. It, it can be another new drug and we still wouldn't regulate it. 
Gotcha. And, you know, one of the things with this was the need for an independent review board when it comes to specialty medications. Can you kind of talk about what that is? Because I'm sure a lot of listeners when they hear independent review board think of the term that gets thrown a lot around a lot as far as like death panels with healthcare and might think this might have the same thing to do with a, a drug and its pricing. Yeah. ICER is a, like a nonprofit organization that basically evaluates the effectiveness and the effectiveness and the the efficacy of the drug to arrive to a value that they would recommend as the price. They usually use like cost effectiveness, like, like health economic modeling. And it's, um, this practice is actually like standard in other countries such as like, Canada and, and Europe. Okay. So um, when it comes to some of the independent review board stuff, they basically would look at it and say, hey, here's where we feel the price should be for some of these specially or really expensive meds. And that's kind of the price that the government will pay for it under the Medicare Part D contract, correct? Uh, yes, that, that's what their the purpose of it is. As I, like, it serves to provide a guidance to health payers. And then that's important because when you're looking at it, if the or the private insurance kind of follows the Medicare mold, then that's huge because Medicare already set their price, so the private's going to set theirs based off that, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of is, ends up being like a a market setting thing with that. Another thing that you'd kind of talked about too with this is the the tax, there's some tax penalty implications if drug prices go past the rate of inflation. How exactly does that work? Can you elaborate? So the Biden administration actually didn't specify a, specific, um, a certain amount or a percentage of the, the rebate, but basically if, if the price of the drug goes beyond the rate of inflation, then the manufacturers would be required to uh, provide a, a rebate to the government as a form of payment. Okay, so if, if like inflation yeah. goes up, say two percent, but the drug company raises their price ten percent, there's an possibly upwards of an eight percent rebate that they would owe back. Could could be less depending on how they, like you said, they didn't specify what percent of the rebate or what have you. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's huge because that would really limit some of the. Uh, the Martin Shkreli's of the world who just, you know, they go and they buy a drug company, find out they're the only one who owns it, jacks the price up 7,000% and then hopes they just can kind of get away with it because there's no other kid in the block. Is that, is that kind of what you're thinking they're going to try and aim at or the Shkreli's of the world? Yeah, 50-50 on that. I do agree with uh, that opinion, but it does incentivize manufacturers to just have a much more expensive launch price. I like since they're starting off of with a very high price, then they don't have to raise it as much every year. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. So there could be some unintended consequences. So if a drug price was going to launch it, we'll say, you know, 200 bucks a month, they might launch it at 500 bucks a month just because they know that they can't make it up over the life of the patent and they're just going to try and hit it out the park with the beginning. Is that kind of one of the yeah. unintended consequences? Yeah. So you're seeing that as an unintended con consequence? Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that would be... That would be super interesting, I guess, is one of those things that just kind of shows that, hey, this might be their goal, but that's something else that could come back in there. Although I do find it interesting if they did this, it would work pretty well with the uh, the independent review board kind of setting their payment price. Because if they said, hey, we're only going to pay this, that's going to be your price, and then we're, we can't go over the rate of inflation. Do you see those kind of working hand in hand if you can't have the tax penalty without that independent review board? Yeah, I do think that most of the policies would have to come in with like, support from another policy instead of just like one. And it, the independent review board and the, man, the mandate rebate would just would really help lower the drug costs, especially for specialty medications. 
Yeah, and I think that's a that's a good call out there is that a lot of these, when you try and do drug pricing by itself with standalone policies, it's so like mercurial. There's so many other avenues that they can do to kind of keep that price up or to change that price or to help with the way it's negotiated or, you know, like I said, with rebates to incentivize how it's prescribed or dispensed. That's huge is you really got to hit multiple fronts so you can kind of really kind of keep that monster, you know, in the in the coffin, if you will. But yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good way of looking at it. So uh, another thing that was brought up was drug importation, which feels like it gets brought up under every single president. Can you (laughs) what's your opinion on that part of it? Uh, I think it's uh, it's kind of a waste of time. It doesn't even for like national pharmacy organizations do not support the practice of the drug importation because one is we're, we can't assure our patients of the uh, safety and efficacy of the drugs. And second is we're taking away the drugs of patients from another country. Yeah. It's just simple like supply and demand. So I don't know why it's really popular. Every <laughs> I think every president just like recommends like drug importation. <laughs> Yeah, and I think part of it is because you hear these stories of like women drove to Canada and got her insulin for, you know, three dollars that was five hundred here. But what you don't hear is, okay, that might work for one person as a one off one time, but when you try and do it for three hundred and thirty million Americans, which is more than the entire well, like way more than the entire population of Canada, it's just going to not work because now their whole contract system just falls completely apart. And like you said, they can't serve their people. Drug pricing shouldn't be a zero-sum sum game where if we can't get it, we're just going to steal from all these people. And we've also seen other governments like Canada openly push back on that and be like, no, no, that's not going to happen. Like there's one-offs, <laughs> we get it, but you're not going to come rob our piggy bank and use what we have done to help you because then they're going to raise the prices on us and then we're going to get hosed in the back end. So I think that's one of the reasons why drug importation has these feel-good stories and anecdotes with it, but when you actually try to implement it, like the numbers, the math never works. As far as countries, the U.S. is the third biggest country. So who are we going to piggyback off of to really do that? I mean, China and India, and they make most of our drugs. And obviously, we're in pretty good uh, trading wars with with China the past few years. So I don't think that's something we're (laughs) going to piggyback off of. I just don't see how that one works either, especially because, again, it just keeps getting hammered home. And we even saw Florida pass a law about importing drugs from Canada. And I think the net effectiveness of that has been pretty minimal. Have, Have you heard anything on that one? I actually have not. That's interesting. Maybe I'll start looking at that. Yeah, it didn't really take off the way they wanted. I think it was, again, one of those, hey, it feels good. Everyone likes this idea. And then it just fell flat. Another thing that you had discussed was the the CREATES Act. And again, that's an acronym, C-R-E-A-T-E-S. And who introduced it? Why is it gaining traction with the Biden administration? Can you kind of go into the CREATES Act? Yeah. So the CREATES is CREATES stands for the Creating and Storing Equal Access to Equivalent Samples Act. It was already signed into law by Vermont Senator Leahy. And the purpose is to increase uh, generic supply, which is generally cheaper than um, brand medication, by, um, I guess, uh, stopping manufacturers and brand brand drugs manufacturers from those little tweaks to their uh, drug to extend the patent. And so generic manufacturers would have to wait longer and patients would have to wait longer for cheaper generic medications. Okay, so when it comes to something like omeprazole, where you see omeprazole is out there as Prilosec for years on end, and then you see it come as esomeprazole, as Nexium, as that patent kind of runs out. And those kind of games is kind of what this is aimed at stopping? Yes. 
Yeah, that would that would go a huge way in driving down drug, drug prices just because we see when those other kind of new, if you will, brands come out that they just get pushed, you know, from the advertising dollars instead of the other one. And then you see prescribing go up. There's always some study that claims it's like 3% better, and that's what drives it. And that's kind of a something that's been going on for decades in pharmacy. Uh, so kind of taking some uh, step back here for some open time, what do you kind of think about the Biden administration approach to lowering drug prices? Can you give me like a, your full thoughts on it? I think that he gets most of his recommendations from actual health professionals, like people who have been working in the field or experts in um, this topic. I mean, it does, it introduces different policies and it's from, it attacks like every single area that the drug, uh, drug pricing in general is pacing. Like he has one for specialty, specialty medications and for Medicare Part D and so on and so forth. So, so are you generally optimistic about it or kind of what are your, what are your feelings on it? I, I think it's, it induces the conversation to finally have the conversation to sort of policy makers start, actually start doing something to decrease drug pricing. This sports, you know, more conversation even for pharmacy organizations. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it brings up a few different things that we haven't seen done in the past, or it brings them up similar ones like the Independent Review Board, but in a different way. It actually kind of piecemeals together some things that uh, Donald Trump's administration had tried to done previously with the, well, the drug importation, we kind of killed that one. But as far as the uh, the external pricing part and things like that, which is something that, you know, all of a sudden now we're seeing uh, Trump being pretty far right, Biden being a little more obviously left-leaning, but a little more in the middle on things, just kind of combine some things that were like, hey, if the left and the right can both see this, there's no reason we can't get some of these things through or use this model to try and get that get that changed. And it'll be interesting to see what it means for pharmacy because it could mean less dollars coming in the pharmacy, but it might mean that with some of these other things to keep the prices down, that we're not seeing the crazy inflations and like the different rebate programs that we've seen in the past kind of get switched around to have other effects on pharmacy in the in the long term. With that, there's a couple of questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And I want to get your your feedback on them or your answers, I mean, if you could change one thing about pharmacy, not law, but just one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? I would want to decrease the number of school of pharmacy schools that are, I guess, just opening. And, you know, I just, <laughs> I think the, the pharmacy is really saturated right now. And John, if I could just put a pause to that right now. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. It's uh, It seems kind of crazy that the amount of schools when I graduated 2009 to now, 2021, have, I believe they've doubled, if not more than doubled. And, uh, you know, their class sizes might be a slightly smaller, but not that much smaller. So we're definitely seeing a lot of people, and even we're seeing less people apply to pharmacy. So that's kind of telling you of where the profession kind of outlook is on things like that. And we've seen some major changes in the past few years of what that outlook looks like. So that's, as a student, I think you might hit you a little, a little more directly in the job market, but I do think it's something that's kind of universally felt all around. If you could change one yep. law in pharmacy, what would it be and why? I I would implement a kind of a ratio, let's say for, for inpatient or hospital, like a, a certain ratio to a patient to a pharmacist. And uh, for to me, like the number of scripts for pharmacists, I, I I think it would just help like every, the workflow and the job satisfactions of um, the pharmacists when they're not just like constantly trying to chase a number and they can actually do their clinical duty. 
the in, inpatient hospital one's interesting. I haven't heard that before, but I guess it makes sense. If you had a 600-bed hospital and, you know, constant demands for everything are piling up, most of them I feel like are usually staffed a little better than some of the retail pharmacy situations we've seen. But it could be one of those things where, hey, we really need them to be fully focused, fully taking time to read, and so we don't want orders piling up on them in stress because they need to catch all those little things, maybe an electrolyte level that was missed or a dosing change that could be a little bit better for somebody else based on something that they just stopped and had more time to question and didn't feel as rushed just to kind of get through it. So that's interesting. And for retail, that's been harped on a number of times. I think a lot of people feel there needs to be some change to staffing for any number of reasons. But a lot of that, a lot of that starts with the, the, the payment models that are what they are from things like PBM. So uh, Grace, thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for sharing your thoughts. Where can people find you if they want to see a kind of uh, like a burgeoning student who's following like the field of pharmacy and politics? Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you just look up Grace Singson on the search. I'm sure I'll pop up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and for people who are the one to look her up, that's Singson, S I N G S O N. Uh, she's definitely got a very active on some of those fields and she'll, she responded to me when I messaged her. So you can always reach out to, uh, to her any given time. So Grace, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Thank you.